Welcome again to All Nations. Thank you for joining us today. It's such a blessing uh, to worship together uh, as a family of God. Now, uh, speaking of family, there's a situation that nearly all of us have experienced, either as a parent or a child. Uh, Families out at dinner or some kind of special social gathering, a child starts acting up. Maybe he's fighting with his sibling or just throwing a tantrum And so the father issues a stern warning. You either stop that or we're going home, right? Cut it out or we are going home. Five minutes later, what happens? Kids are fighting again. Your daughter's screaming again. But what happens next? The family doesn't leave, right? The family doesn't leave. Those tickets to the movies or that dinner is too expensive just to leave. The, 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 you know, you're just at the appetizer or you're, you're, you're with family and friends and it's just too embarrassing to get up and leave. So the parents will try something else to discipline or placate their children, typically an iPhone or an iPad. It's understandable. But if you think about it, that father just issued an empty threat. An absolutely empty threat. And in that moment, they're teaching their child, mom and dad don't always mean what they say. Right? Mom and dad don't always mean what they say. Well, I have an older friend in ministry who's been a grandfather for many years now. And he was telling me uh, a great story of how he likes to take his grandchildren. Right? I, I forget how many he has. He has a handful. Uh, but as their birthday gift, every year he takes his grandchild, his grandchildren, to Disneyland. Disneyland, one-on-one grandpa time. And he only has one rule, one rule. Listen to grandpa or we're leaving. Listen to grandpa or we're leaving. And one year he was with his oldest grandchild. And she was just so excited to be at Disneyland. She kept running ahead of him to go to the next attraction, the next store, the next shop. Right? She was just so excited and thrilled about this. And he said, stop it. It's dangerous. Stay close to grandpa. One warning. She said, okay, right? Five minutes later, she runs ahead. Guess what happened? They left. They left. She didn't even make it to lunch, right? No no Dole Whip, no churro, right? She was so shocked. She didn't say a word on the way home. Guess what happened the next year when Grandpa took her to Disneyland for her birthday? She held his hand. The whole time. And the funny thing is, she, she told all the other grandkids, she told all of the other grandkids, be careful, you have to listen to Grandpa, right? He doesn't mess around. Grandpa means what he says, right? Learn from me. She, it's the power of testimony. The power of testimony, right? She warned her other siblings and cousins, listen to Grandpa. No empty threats. Well, we're continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. And in our passage today, we are introduced to the final plague. God issues one final threat to Pharaoh. One that will devastate every family in Egypt if he does not let Israel go. And as we go through the text, I want to ask you, in your view of God, as you think about God, as you relate to God and understand God, Does he mean what he says? Are his warnings weighty? Are his promises sweet? Or is your God a God of empty threats and vague sentiments? 
If you have your Bibles, please turn to our passage today. Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. I'll be reading from the ESV. It's also going to go up on the screen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague, or one plague more, I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and, the firstborn, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Amen. The word of the Lord. You can break this passage down into three basic sections. Verses 1 to 3, uh, they describe God's word and promise to Moses and Israel. From verses 4 to 8, we have God's final warnings to Pharaoh. And in verses 9 and 10, there's a summary and an explanation of God's dealings with Pharaoh. Now, if you remember the end of chapter 10, uh, last week's sermon, uh, Pharaoh told Moses, after Moses threatened that, um, the, the plague of darkness, they had that confrontation, Pharaoh told Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh threatened Moses, if I ever see you again, you're going to die. Right? Moses agreed. He agreed. And so here we are in chapter 11, and it almost seems that they met again. And Moses and Pharaoh kind of went back on their word, right? Um, but that's actually not the case. Chapter 11 describes some events before Moses leaves Pharaoh's court in chapter 10. And so he actually warned Pharaoh of the ninth and tenth plagues during the same encounter, Okay, uh, Pharaoh, uh, Moses tells Pharaoh the darkness is going to fall over Egypt and unless you repent, unless you let Israel go, you will find death come to each and every one of your households. As we unpack this text, I want to focus on three things. And they're all about God. We can learn so much about who God is and all that he does from this passage. I want to look at the faithfulness of God. Second, we want to look at the justice of God. And finally, the glory of God. Okay. In this passage, I want to highlight the faithfulness, then the justice, and finally the glory of God. In the first three verses of our passage, we see God's word and his promise to Moses and Israel. 
He tells Moses that there will be a final plague that will indeed set Israel free. The first nine plagues showed that God was sovereign over all of creation, over all of nature. But in the tenth plague, okay, in the tenth plague, God will show that he is sovereign over life and death, right? So God is sovereign over the waters of the Nile, over the gnats and the flies and the locusts, the hail, right? The, the, the sun and the darkness, he's sovereign over all of those things. But in this 10th plague, God demonstrates that he has life and death in his own hand. The first nine plagues humiliated and hardened Pharaoh, but the final one will break him. The final one will force him to surrender. So he tells Moses, it's time to prepare for the exodus. But before you leave, God tells Israel that they are to go to the Egyptians and ask them for their silver and their gold. They are to plunder Egypt. Just as a victor plunders his defeated foe, he tells tells them that they will have favor in the sight of the Egyptians, right? It seems like a ridiculous request. Who's going to go to their enemy and say, give me your silver, give me your gold, right? They'd be like, you can take it from my dead hand, right? That would be a normal response. But God says, no, 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 you're going to have favor, among the Egyptians. They're actually going to give it to you. They're going to surrender it over to you. They want you to leave so bad. They've been terrified of Yahweh and terrified of God's people. After all of these plagues, they'll literally pay you to get out of their land. They will bless you. Moses himself will be exalted by Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of all the people. This is actually, uh, just kind of sidebar, this is actually um, the first time that God has instructions for Israel during the ten plagues. All of the other conversations and encounters have been between God and Pharaoh. Right? God and Pharaoh, God enacting his might and power over Egypt, but in the tenth plague, God has instructions for his own people. And we're going to see more of that in the sermons to come. Now what's so significant about these instructions and promises that we see in these first three verses. I want you to see that they're all in accordance to God's prophetic word. God's promises here, right now, in this 10th plague, they are being fulfilled. God is being faithful to his word. His faithfulness is going back hundreds and hundreds of years. In Genesis 15, when God is making a covenant with his servant Abram, he says this, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Who is God talking about? He's talking about Israel. And who are they going to be oppressed under? Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That was God's promise. That was God's prophecy. 400 years previous, God told Abram that your offspring, they will become slaves. They will be oppressed. They will be afflicted. But he also promised that he would deliver them, that he would bring them out of oppression and not let them leave empty-handed as slaves. They will come out with great possessions. This is the moment of God being faithful to that promise here in the 10th plague, here in the Exodus. God is keeping his promises as he instructs Israel to go to the Egyptians and ask for their silver and ask for their gold. And Egypt does it willingly. 
Egypt has seen that Yahweh is mightier than their gods. They have seen how Yahweh has favor over Israel as darkness covered the land of Egypt for three days. There was light in Israel's neighborhood. They were all residing in Goshen. Goshen had light. As the locusts plagued the land and devoured every plant, every tree, all of the resources, the locusts spared Goshen. Over and over again, God's people were spared from the plagues. Egypt saw this. They realized that Yahweh was mightier than their gods, and Israel was his people. The Egyptians knew that Israel was blessed. Moreover, in the tenth plague, God is making good on his warning to Pharaoh. Before any of the plagues even began in Exodus chapter 4, when God first uh, commands Moses to go to Pharaoh, this is what is said. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay. This is what God is saying. Israel is so precious to me. My people are so beloved. I consider them my firstborn son. I see their pains. I see, Pharaoh, what you have been doing to them. If you do not let them go, I will kill your firstborn son. That was not an empty threat. That was not just an angry sentiment. That was a promise. That was a promise. That was a prophecy. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean in the Bible Right? What does the Bible mean when it refers to the faithfulness of God? What does that mean? Because we throw that around so often in our prayers, in our conversations, in our songs. We love to acknowledge God for his faithfulness. When the Bible talks about God being faithful, it, ta- it means that God is being faithful to his promises. That he means what he says. That he does what he declares. This is what faithfulness is, to keep your word. You guys understand that. That's what it means to be faithful, to keep your word. But here's the issue with us. We mix God's faithfulness with our own flourishing. Okay? We tend to mix God's faithfulness with our own flourishing. So we thank God for being faithful when, when we get into college. right? Or you didn't study and you still passed the exam. We're like, oh, Jehovah Jireh. Right? God is so faithful and he's providing. We thank God for his faithfulness when our jobs are going well, when our businesses are thriving. We thank God for being faithful when, when our sick family members get healthy, right? When things are going well, when we get out of the problems of life, we talk, we sing, we say, God, you are faithful. Those are good things to thank God for, right? He is the author of every good and perfect gift. But here's the question. If you flip it, though, If you flip it in the midst of suffering and loss, does that mean God is being unfaithful? Is God being unfaithful to you when you get fired? Is he being unfaithful to you when you have to declare bankruptcy? Is he being unfaithful to you when you are on academic probation and you have to drop out of college or you don't have the resources anymore to pay for these just bloated tuitions all over our education system in America? You can't afford that. Has God failed you? When your boyfriend breaks up with you, oh Lord, you're being unfaithful to me. Or when you lose someone you love, has God been unfaithful to you? When I married my wife, I made a vow to her. I made a promise to her. 
to love her, to cherish her, to honor her as long as I live. To live with her after God's commandments in sickness and in health, in plenty and in wanting. That was my promise. That was my covenant. What I didn't promise, what I couldn't promise were vacations all over the world. I couldn't promise, babe, you will never have to work another day in your life. I couldn't promise Chanel bags and Louis Vuitton and all of this stuff. That we'd live in a huge house in a perfect neighborhood with three kids and a dog. And if I just described your life, good thing you didn't marry me. Right? Good thing you didn't marry me. But seriously, brothers and sisters, faithfulness in marriage is demonstrated through covenant fidelity. Right? It's demonstrated through all of our circumstances, good or bad. Faithfulness is not us securing circumstances, securing goods for each other, and then proving ourselves to be faithful. Church, we need a deeper understanding of God's faithfulness. It's not determined by our seasonal flourishing. It's not determined by our seasonal suffering. His faithfulness is found in his unbroken promises. Right? Just think about that. God never has never broken a promise to his people. It is impossible for God to lie, says the word of God. He has promised that he will never leave nor forsake us. The scriptures promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He also promises, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He promises and invites us to cast our anxieties upon him upon him because he cares for us. Those are the promises of God. The riches of God's promises, they are so vast. They are so beautiful. If only we would learn to see them in the scriptures and treasure them in our hearts. You don't know God is faithful to you because you don't know his promises. You don't know what he has promised to you. If only we would learn those things we would truly understand what it means for God to be our faithful God. Well, here in the Exodus, we see the faithfulness of God on full display. He heard Israel's cries as they were in oppression and slavery. He remembered his covenant with his servant Abraham, and he promised justice. He promised justice against the wicked. Let's move over now into the justice of God. As our passage continues, we see Moses' words to Pharaoh and the final warning of the plague of death. This shows us many things, but I want to focus on God's justice. Moses tells Pharaoh that at midnight, the firstborn in all of Egypt shall die. From Pharaoh's family down to the lowliest slave, even the firstborn of your cattle, of your herds, they shall perish at the hand of the angel of death. And there shall be a great cry throughout all of Egypt that has never been heard or will be heard again. But the households households of Israel, they will be spared. Not even a dog will growl against them. This isn't in the manuscript, but um, I have a baby. He's uh, turning seven months now. Before that, we had a fur baby. We have, not had, have a fur baby. Our dog, she's five years old, and we were worried. We're like, man, is this going to work? Right? Our pa- both sides of our family are like, get rid of the dog, right? Get rid of the dog. And we're like, no. Um, 
So far, Piper has been fantastic. No bites, right? No fighting. Sometimes Seth, like, just wants to pull her tail. Uh, But every once in a while, Piper will growl. She'll look at Seth. Seth will get too close, and she'll do a low growl, right? And it's just her being territorial. It's maybe her being jealous, right? Her being a little, little aggressive towards our baby, right? And in those moments, there's tension, right? There's conflict. God is saying, Israel, you will be so blessed. You will be so cared for, right? Not even a dog will growl against you as you are set free, right? As you are sent out, you will be blessed. They're going to give you their silver, and they're going to pay you to leave, Their land set you free from slavery. Now I'm going to talk more about the sparing of Israel next week as we study the Passover. But for now, I simply want to say there is a distinction between Egypt and Israel, right? And that distinction seems ethnocentric, but I want to tell you it's not. It's not based on God's favor, his sparing, his blessing is not based on whether you are a Jew or an Egyptian. It's based on the blood of the Passover lamb. We're going to cover that more next week, but I just want to safeguard that uh, distinction so we don't interpret it uh, inappropriately. In the first nine plagues, God was showing himself to be more powerful than the vast Egyptian pantheon. From the God of the Nile to the God of the sun, And though in the 10th plague there is more of these kind of spiritual, idolatry, power dynamics, God is proving himself to be more powerful than the Egyptian god of death and the Egyptian god of the underworld. But it's more a demonstration of God's divine justice. For the 400 years, Israel was in servitude and slavery to Egypt. When Moses was a baby, you guys remember Pharaoh's decree. Pharaoh feared the Hebrews because they were growing in number. So he decreed that every Hebrew boy would be drowned in the Nile. That's infanticide, right? Pharaoh wanted to wipe out an entire generation of young Hebrew baby boys. By God's mighty hand and miracle, Moses was spared. But God's people were crying out in distress. They're crying out for justice. God heard their cries. Israel was God's firstborn. And so what God did to Pharaoh was a direct response to what Pharaoh did to him. Okay? I just want to say that. What God did to Pharaoh was a direct response to what Pharaoh did to him. As Pharaoh tried to drown the firstborn of the Hebrew households, God said, I see that. And I'm going to enact justice upon you and your entire nation. Now, some of you may question whether this was right of God. Is it right? Is it okay for God to to do this, to do such such a devastating thing, to kill the sons of Egypt? That doesn't seem very God-like, right? I mean, even non-Christians like to say God is love, right? They know that. Where is God's mercy? Where is his forgiveness? Where is his grace on this 10th plague? It doesn't seem to fit with, with our with our understanding of a a, a God of compassion and grace and love. I want to say a couple of things. First, forgiveness and grace is not cheap. It's costly. Forgiveness and grace is always costly. If someone offends you and you forgive them, do you know what has to take place? You have to eat 
the cost. You have to eat the cost. If someone borrows $10,000 from you and then says, I can't pay you back, I'm sorry. You have two options. You either take them to court or you eat the cost, right? You eat the cost. You have to say, I will take the loss. I will take the hit. Your debt is forgiven. There is no forgiveness. There's no grace without cost. Brothers and sisters, that's how you and I receive the grace of Jesus Christ. That's how you and I are forgiven of all of our sins. Not because God just says, they're gone. He doesn't just snap his finger and erase them. Jesus Christ, through his bloodshed work on the cross, he's atoned for our sins. He has paid for our sins. He bore the cost of our sins upon himself. He died in our place. And that is how we are forgiven. So it's wholly inappropriate for us to say, God, be merciful. God, be gracious. God, be loving. God, be forgiving without considering any cost. Without any cost. Second, when we think and talk about justice, okay, we must not prioritize right, the offender over the offended one. You must not prioritize the criminal over the victim. I mean, even our, our criminal justice systems as the punishment should fit the crime. Our, our scriptures teach us an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How did Israel suffer under Egypt? Hebrew mothers lost their sons. Generations of Israelites, 400 years, they were enslaved and oppressed under Egyptian rule. It's actually very prideful. It's actually very insensitive to minimize the pain of the Hebrews by insisting that God just be merciful towards the Egyptians. You guys get that? Right? I think there's this tendency in our, in our culture where we, we want to be tolerant, we want to be compassionate, we want to be forgiving, and so people will commit these vile and heinous crimes. And we, as, as third parties, observe it. Maybe you read it on social media, maybe you have a conversation or make a comment about it, and we say they should just be more forgiving. They should be more understanding. Right? What you do when you have that sentiment, right, you're minimizing you're neglecting the pain of the victim, the person who has been hurt, the person who has been offended against. And when crime is committed, when sins are enacted, our priority needs to be not towards the uh, offender. It needs to be focused on the offended one. Furthermore, it's not just Israel that has been offended by Egypt. It's not just the Hebrews who have been offended by Pharaoh, God himself has been offended. Egypt as an entire nation has been living in idolatry, worshiping the God of the Nile, worshiping the God of the sun, worshiping creation rather than the creator. What's the penalty for idolatry? Egypt has been inflicting pain and suffering and even death upon God's firstborn son, God's people, God's beloved. Egypt has sinned against God Almighty. What should their punishment be? The scriptures clearly say the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Finally, as we consider the justice of God, in the Exodus, God displays both justice and mercy. 
You see, you can look at the 10th plague and say, oh my gosh, what a wrathful, angry God. I don't want to worship a God like that. I will not regard a God like that. I can't trust a God like that if he's willing to kill the firstborn, some innocent babies in Egypt. That's what people might think. But I want to say here there is mercy and there is justice. How many plagues were there? Ten. Pharaoh had ten different opportunities to repent and let the Hebrews go. Parents, I mean, what do you count to? You count to three, right? One, two, three. No one does a ten count to get your kid to stop punching their sibling. No one does a ten count to see whether or not they're going to obey or go to their room or come eat dinner, right? It's three. God gave Pharaoh ten different opportunities to heed his word and repent and obey. Surely, as we study the plagues, we see that God is slow to anger. He is slow to anger, but when his anger is provoked, we must be warned. Right? It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God without the cross of Christ. Without the protection of Christ, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens when you and I actually embrace, when we truly believe in the justice of God, do you know what happens to us? It enables us to forgive. It actually enables us to forgive. It enables us to be patient. It enables us to, to eat right, the, the, the cost and the pain uh, that someone's transgression might be towards us. Remember again God's promise. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that? If someone stabs you in the back, a business deal that goes sour, right? A friend betrays your trust. I mean, so much pain, so much anguish. Do you believe that vengeance is God's? If someone steals something from you, hurts someone you love, how do we respond? And most of us, right, in our flesh, we want revenge, right? We want to make them suffer. We want to make them hurt. Some of you guys are very just fair. You hurt me this much, I want to hurt you that much. Others of you, you guys escalate. You hurt me this one, I'm going to hurt you even more so that you never mess with me again, right? That's how some of you guys are, right? Don't mess with me. You guys are dangerous. What we struggle with, though, is forgiveness. What we struggle with is forgiveness because we want revenge. Here's the thing. If you believe that God will vindicate you, if you believe that vengeance and justice is in the hands of God, you can heal. You can forgive. You can trust God with that hurt. You can trust God with that pain, with that crime, with that sin that was committed against you. You can be freed from your anger, freed from your spite, freed from your own vengeance when you trust that God will make good on his promises, when God will be faithful to his justice. This is what happens in the story of Exodus. It's a sign for us that God is faithful to be just. It is a reminder that we can trust God 
with our deepest pains, our darkest fears, and he will not abandon us. Now, in reality, the timing may not come when you want it. Okay? A lot of times we're going to say, God, now, and he doesn't show up. He doesn't give you the vindication that you want. He doesn't give you the results. Right? Even the psalmist says, I saw evil men prosper and my foot almost slipped. Right? Godly people over and over again have been experiencing the trampling of sinful, powerful men over them, over their family, over their communities, over their country, right? And yet we are commanded, wait on the Lord, okay? He does not abandon his people. He is faithful and just. Our passage ends with a reminder of God and his glory. He declares that Pharaoh will not listen. Over again, Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, And God has hardened his heart as well. God knows that Pharaoh will not listen with his hardened heart. Moses experienced this firsthand. I mean, over and again, in Pharaoh's court, he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, yes. The the plague plague comes, right? And then Pharaoh says, never mind. right? I'm going to recant on that deal. Finally, finally, with this final threat, when Pharaoh refuses, Moses storms out of Pharaoh's court in anger. Anger. Moses is angry with Pharaoh. Why? Why? I believe it's because Moses knew that God's not messing around. He knew what catastrophe would fall not only on Pharaoh's heart, but every household, every family throughout Egypt. He doesn't want to see that happen to the Egyptians. He's been dealing with Pharaoh And he's been angered by Pharaoh's refusal to repent and obey God. But we see, even in this passage, even in Pharaoh's hardening of his heart, that God is sovereign over all. Pharaoh will not obey, so that why? And our passage says, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Okay, what does that mean? For God's wonders to be multiplied in the land of Egypt. That means his glory is going to spread. His glory is going to be recognized all throughout Egypt. Everything God does in human history, in all of creation, it is for his own glory. Now, I know that term glory, it gets squishy in the church. It's like part of our Christianese vocabulary. I want to just clarify it, boil it down to two simple definitions for you to hold on to. Okay, what is the glory of God? It's this. It's the radiance and it's the experience of God's attributes. That's all it is, right? What is the glory of God, okay? It's the shining of all of his attributes, his love, his grace, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his goodness, his omnipotence. All that God is, it is that, is that shining out and being experienced. How can we then glorify God? Very simple. We confess those attributes. We reflect those attributes. We sing of those attributes. We boast of who God is. We tell one another about who God is, just like that granddaughter told all of her siblings, don't mess with grandpa. Right? That's the power of testimony. She was spreading, she was multiplying the, 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 the uh, character, the might, the authority of grandpa right? to her little family members. Israel did this from generation to generation, right? They told, they multiplied, they glorified God for all that he was 
and all that he did. Psalm 136. Uh, there's a familiar refrain. It says, his steadfast love endures forever. We know Chris Tomlin wrote a song, right, forever, uh, like about this psalm. His steadfast love endures forever. Uh, but this verse didn't make it into the song. Israel sang, they declared, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the multiplying of God's work and his wonders all throughout Egypt, all throughout humanity. Brothers and sisters, all of the plagues, they weren't just judgment over Egypt. They weren't just care and compassion and provision over Israel to get them out of slavery. All of the plagues were enacted for God's glory. It was God revealing himself to Israel in Egypt, God revealing himself to Moses and Pharaoh, all for his own glory. And he's revealing himself to us as well because he wants us to do the same thing, to glorify him, for us to see God as he truly is and tell the nations, tell one another all of his works, all of his wonders. Just as God warned Pharaoh of his sin, just as God issues this final threat to Pharaoh that if he does not obey, if he does not repent, God will bring death to his household and death to every household in Egypt. I believe God warns us as well. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for Jesus Christ is returning. And when he does, he will come as judge over the living and the dead. God is speaking to us. He's speaking to you. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? What has God been warning you of? If you do an inventory and evaluation of your life, what's going on in your life, in your heart, in your attitudes, in your behavior, in your relationships? What sins are destroying your life? What addictions are, are throwing up barriers and walls in your relationships? What sins are keeping you from walking with God and abiding Him, abiding in Him? See, I believe it's not just your conscience that tugs at you. I believe in those moments when you hear and you sense God's warning, the weightiness of His commands in your life, that's the Spirit. That's the Spirit prompting you. That's God speaking to you. God, that's God warning you of the danger of sin. He's exposing your idols. The question is, are you listening? Will you take God at his word? Do you believe that there are consequences to your sins? Right? Or in your mind, is God the kind of God who makes empty promises? Is God the kind of God who doesn't mean what he says? I read a quote from Tim Keller the other day that I wanted to share. He said, the only sins that can destroy us are the ones we don't confess. Those are the only sins that can destroy you. Those are the sins that will destroy your family, destroy your life, right? Are the ones you do not confess. But everything that we do confess, everything that we lay at the feet of Jesus, there is forgiveness. 
God will take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. I love the promise in 1 John once again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's warnings, they are real? But do you also believe that God, God's promises, they are sweet, they are secure, they are for you in Christ? This is what it means for Jesus Christ to be the yes and amen, right? This is what it means for Jesus Christ to be our faithful friend. He makes real, he makes accessible, he makes all of God's promises ours. Let's receive them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us now to hear your voice. Forgive us for so often and for so long we've tried to ignore you. We've We've tried to run from you. We've tried to postpone our repentance, our change, our obedience. I pray that right now, by the leading and convicting of your Holy Spirit, we would hear the warnings that you have for us. But would we also hear the grace that you have secured for us in Jesus Christ. Would you lead us right now to look to you, to take seriously your word and your promises, and to see them as beautiful, as powerful, as treasure for our souls. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.